family, friends, who really controls this world? Who controls the world? Is it God? Does he control creation, creatures, crisis? Does Satan, one or the other, Either God controls creation, creatures of creation and crisis, or either Satan does. Who controls? The answer to this is extremely important and practical for everyday living. The crisis of cancer. Watching that one you love so much who professes Christ as Savior and Lord, you watch them, the pain, the agony, death. Who controls this world? The crisis, the loneliness. Who controls? I trust that today as we by the Holy Spirit will see Scripture. The Bible is perfect, family. The Bible is true. It is complete. In this wonderful book, we have everything we need for knowing God and His will, His plans, His purposes. And here in verse 10, The prayer has concluded, and we have a wonderful intervention of God, of seeing God's incredible power and his goodness, for that is our focus as we continue looking at what is God doing, what is God doing in this world. We see here in the life of Jonah and all concerned, and I want us to see it, God's extraordinary power and his goodness in that power. Verse 10, verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah unto dry land. Remember the setting. Jonah has been used by God on earlier occasions. Jonah is a prophet, a preacher. And God has another assignment for Jonah. Jonah, leave where you are and go to Nineveh, that great city. It is so large, historians tell us, it took three days to walk the circumference. If you walk 20 miles a day, three days around the city, it was so large. Great city, but it is evil. The atrocities, the beatings, the cruelty, the torture, the inhumane treatment they of Nineveh inflicted upon those they defeated. Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian empire, they took great pride in their cruelty. And yet God wants to show mercy. God wants to show 
of the Savior to come. Nineveh, go there. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah, Jonah says, no way. I don't want them forgiven. I don't want them to repent. That's in his heart. And so he tries to run a far, as far away as possible. He'll go to Tarshish. But to get to Tarshish, he needs to cross by the ocean. So he goes to Joppa. He finds a boat going to, going to Tarshish. He pays uh, the money needed. He buys a ticket. And now God's going to grab him. God's going to get his attention. God's going to turn him around. So he says a storm, a violent storm, tempestuous storm, deadly storm for Jonah and for the other sailors to turn him around. The people on that boat realize someone is responsible for this. And Jonah admits, I'm responsible. I'm running from God. And that's the reason you're about to die. We're all about to die. So throw me overboard. Throw me in the water. Let me drown. Let me drown and you'll be okay. They didn't want to throw him overboard. They didn't want to be responsible for his death. And so they pray, God, don't hold us responsible. And then they throw him overboard. And God commanded a large fish to be at the right place at the right time among that tempestuous, terrible storm. I believe as Jonah was hitting the bottom of the ocean, the weeds around his head to come and swallow him and keep him alive for three days and three nights. And then verse 10, that's our focus. What is it saying? What does it imply? What do we learn about God? Here it is. Jonah's been in that fish's stomach for three days and three nights. Then... The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah unto dry land. Did that really occur? Absolutely it occurred, because Jesus uses it as an illustration of teaching of himself. Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, so he will be in the grave for three days and three nights. Jesus believed this is historical, actual event. And we must also believe it. Jesus believed it. Look, back to chapter 1, verse 4. What I want us to go away today that will affect the rest of our life. Here it is. Seeing, resting, in the extraordinary power of God and his goodness in that power. That's what God wants us to see. His extraordinary power over creation, over creatures of creation, and his extraordinary power and goodness in your crisis and in the crisis of others. Here, back in chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that the Lord hurled that violent wind in the sea, 
And such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break it apart. Who created that storm? Who is bringing these near death? God is. God spoke. That's all it took for that storm, that deadly storm to create. Look at 1 9, chapter 1, verse 9. These other sailors in the boat are asking, Who are you, Jonah? You've gone to sleep during this storm. Who are you? What have you done to make God punish us as he is punishing us? Who are you? Where are you going? What have you done? Tell us about yourself. Jonah confesses. He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, my God, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Who is this God? He is creator of the heavens. He made the sea. He made the dry land. Do you see his power? Do you see his goodness? It makes a difference in everyday life. He continues, remember back in Genesis at creation. Is he your God? Are you his son and his daughter? Look what God did in Genesis 1, 3, 6, and 9. At creation, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Family, that's all it took for God to speak, and the light came into creation. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. He spoke. He said, the expanse. Verse 9 Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. That's who God is, the one and only true God. He speaks. That's all it took for God to create. He wants you to know him. To believe him, to trust him, to rest in his goodness, his extraordinary power. Look at 115, back to Jonah 115. Look, look at God's power. Look at his goodness. The other sailors, when Jonah admits that he's the problem, God is punishing everyone because of him, his disobedience, his rebellion. I'm running from God. I don't want to obey him. Then they, with great hesitancy, those sailors picked Jonah up. They threw him into the sea. And what happened? The sea stopped its raging. God began the storm. Now he's ending it. That's all it takes is the word of God to speak. 
They really are frightened now. The men, verse 16, the men feared the Lord even more. This God of Jonah's. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Dr. Tim Keller believes these men, these sailors, were truly, wonderfully converted to Christ. They heard. They're expressing worship. They're expressing their desire to obey. Folk, often when we're in trouble, We'll cry out to God and make our promises. Oh, God, if you'll just handle this situation, if you'll answer our prayers, then we will obey you. That's not these men. God had already brought calm. He had already brought peace. And now, not in crisis, but after the crisis, they want to worship. They want to obey. We want to fulfill our vows to you, God. We're believing. You really are the God of this ocean, this God of this world. You really did create this storm, and now you are bringing peace and calm. Verse 17, 17. Now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Do you see his power over creation? Over the creatures of creation? And over crisis? I just love it. Fish, go. At that point, swallow that man thrown overboard. He swallowed him. Kept him alive three days. Fish, vomit him on the dry land. That's all it took. That's all it took. God created that big fish. Look at Psalm 105. Look at Psalm 105. What are we trying to do? To have a new rest, a new appreciation for what? The extraordinary power of God over creation, over the creatures of creation, and over crisis. 105.25, whose hearts he turned to hate his people and to deal deceptively with his servants. God's people are slaves in Egypt. Slaves, the abuse, the brutality, the torture, the death. God's people are suffering severely because they have not believed, they have not obeyed. And God says, unless you obey, I'm going to discipline you. And it's not going to be pretty. And it wasn't pretty. The cruelty... The abuse, the torture God's own family are experiencing because of their unbelief and their rebellion, their selfishness. God said, this is what I'm going to do. He's after their hearts. God's after the hearts of his people. He disciplines those he loves. He doesn't let us go. 
So what does God do to his people? Now remember, God is never responsible for sin. God is never responsible for sin. But look at these words that describe what God did to his people who he loves, who are calling them back. Look at these words. Verse 25, whose hearts, these Egyptians, God turned their hearts to what? To hate his people and to deal deceptively with his servants. God is never responsible for sin. But God used these evil people to get the attention of his people. What did God do? He spoke and frogs were created. He spoke and there were insects and gnats. He spoke, verse 35, and there were 34, there were locusts. So many locusts you could not count them all. That's what God does. What does God have to do in my heart to get my attention? What is God going to have to do in your heart and my heart to get your attention? It's because he loves his own. He loves you. And he wants your heart. We could go on and on. Elijah, wonderfully used by God, is now running for his life, going through severe drought. Elijah, go to the brook. There's going to be water for a time, and you'll need food. Elijah, God says he's going to command ravens to come and feed you. Back on the farm, we called ravens buzzards. Would you want a buzzard raven to come and feed you? Is it safe to eat this? God commanded the ravens to come and feed him, to keep him alive. God commanded that big fish to come. What about needing finances? <laughs> it's time to pay your taxes. And the disciples are concerned about taxes. And Jesus wanted his people to be good citizens. And they didn't have enough money to pay their taxes. Jesus says this. Disciples, go down to the sea. Go down to the water. Cast your net, pardon me, your hook into the water. Cast your hook into the water. And the very first fish you find, just the first one, open it up, look in his mouth, and there's a coin. Not a penny, 
enough tax, valued enough to pay Jesus' tax and everyone's taxes in his party. That's all it took. That's all it took. I love it. Jesus never promises to provide what you want. He never promises to provide what you think you need. He never does that. But he promises to provide legitimately that which he knows is best. And often what he knows is best is completely contrary to what we think. Did you hear that? He promises to provide what we need for his praise, not what we think we need. What difference does all of this make, family? What difference does it make? What are the benefits? What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? What difference does it make in everyday life? In believing these truths about Christ, what difference does it make? Does it make a difference in this life? If you're turning from your sin, if you're wanting Christ's will above your own, what difference does it make resting in his extraordinary power and goodness? What difference does it make? What are the benefits? What are the benefits which in this life come from our adoption? If you're in the family, what difference does it make? Five wonderful benefits. The first benefit is this. Assurance of God's love. Assurance of God's love. This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 36. Number 36. What difference does it make? Listen. It makes a difference. You can have assurance of God's commitment to you. If you're in him, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, sanctification is this, assurance of God's love. God's love is far more than an emotion. You can have assurance of God's commitment to you to do what he knows you need and to keep from you what he knows you do not need. That's his love. That's his commitment. That if he is yours and you are his, he is committed to not give you what you do not need, but to give you everything you do need. You can have that assurance that when he withholds it from you, it's for your best. When he gives it to you, it's for your best. Assurance of his commitment to you. Secondly, peace of conscience. Peace of conscience. Do you struggle in your conscience? I do. Sin, failures, struggles. Do you? 
you can have peace in your conscience by trusting in the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. You can have such peace in your conscience knowing that by his resurrection, he has removed that sin, that punishment, that Christ has taken it upon himself. Christ taking that punishment you and I deserve upon himself and given you his acceptance. I struggle to believe every day. I struggle to believe this every day. Assurance of his commitment to you. Peace of conscience. Thirdly, a joy. A joy in the Holy Spirit. An inner joy when you're going through that crisis. That cancer. That accident, that miscarriage, that death, an inner peace and comfort. An increase of grace. Once we're converted, he doesn't stop there and just leave us alone. No, he continues working in you that you and I may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Growing in his grace and knowledge. How are you doing? Are you? Are we growing together? And perseverance to the end. I'm so glad that he who has begun a good work in his children, he will bring it to completion. Lord, get us home before dark. Don't let us fail you. Don't let us quench your spirit to finish well and finish strong in repentance, in faith. She was seven years old. She was seven years old. She was so excited about walking home by herself. She did not notice the group of boys that were behind her. Throwing rocks at her. Mocking her bullying her, a victim of polio and able to walk home for the first time. Bullying, mocking. One of the boys came up and pushed her down and they scattered and none of them waited to see if she was okay. Cripple! She was able to get up go home. She didn't tell anybody. What could they do? But from that moment on, she says she wondered, why? Why? Am I crippled from polio? 
that bullying continued, that mocking, that imitating her, children making fun of her. When she got to high school, things changed in the sense that no longer did they mock her. They had sympathy for her, and her classmates were kind to her. But in her heart, she was raging angry. They didn't know it. Anger. Because she was different. At 16, she heard two of her girlfriends share testimonies of how Christ had changed their lives. And so she opened up the Bible. And she read where there was a blind man and the people were asking, who sinned? This boy? And God's punishing him? These parents? Who sinned? Somebody has sinned. Or he wouldn't be blind. And Jesus said, no, <laughs> neither would has sinned and is responsible for this blindness. And I'm paraphrasing. This person is blind to display the glory of God in Christ. God has ordained in his goodness to bring to himself glory through the blindness of this child. She said, by the Holy Spirit, what? God can use my polio, my crippledness, to bring him glory, radically changed her. Eventually she married. The little boy at birth, severe heart problems that demanded immediate surgery to his little heart. He did well. After the surgery, mama took him back for an appointment for a checkup. Uh, the main doctor was not there. One who was filling in said, hey, he's doing great. Let's take him off of some of these medicines. Within two days, the little fella was dead. Is this what it's like to follow Christ? And she just longed to hold her son, to be able to feed him a mother's heart for her little ones. And in her heart, she rebelled. God, I'm not going to have anything to do with you if this is the way you treat us. Polio, mockery, bullying. death of her little son. She and her husband had marital struggles. They had gone to counseling. He left her. He deserted her. He took up with another woman and moved out of the area, leaving her two adolescent daughters. 
She was diagnosed that her polio, the effects were going to return and she would have permanent paralysis. Think of what I've said. She gives this testimony over the gospel correlation. If you read anything or see anything about gospel correlation, it's good. It's excellent. This is her story. Now think back. Child, polio, mockery, bullying, alone. High school. Where are you, God? Why did you make me this way? Why? Eventually marriage. The death of your little one. Desertion by your husband for another woman. Return of the effects of polio. But through Christ and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the family, not her own necessarily, certainly family, but the community, the church. We heard Randy telling us to be a part of small group. Try it. Go to one. Go to another. Try it. But through community, through the body of Christ. This is where Christ has brought her, that same one. Listen to her words. She's trusting in the extraordinary power of Jesus Christ and the goodness of Christ. Listen to what she says in this gospel correlation message. I'm grateful for my suffering because through it God has transformed me and made me love him more. Jared, I'm thankful for my suffering. Because it is through this suffering God has transformed me and made me love him more. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christ. Not only to take us to heaven when we die, but to bring peace to your conscience. to bring peace to your heart as you go through crisis and disappointment. That you can say to others as they are in their crisis, there is a God and he is Jesus Christ. And you can trust him when he says yes and when he says no. Trust him. Depend on him. Don't depend on yourself to be good enough. Don't try. Don't 
to earn your way. We're all failures. But whatever crisis he takes you, if you're his, you can eventually say, it was for your glory. It was for your praise that you took us on this journey. Because now I know you better. Now I know you better. It is the extraordinary power and the goodness of God the Father to give you the most precious gift he could give you, the gift of his own son, to live for you, to die for you, to take your sin upon himself and to give you his righteousness. If he's done that for you, how much more? How much more? Will he not also graciously provide for every need, every need, every need, every need, as he knows best? Father, convince us of this truth, of the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of your extraordinary power, of your goodness in the crisis in the disappointments, in the heartache, when you say no, no, it's because you love us. May we believe it. May we share it with all in the name of Christ. Amen.